Chinese Communist leader Xi Jinping threatens the U.S. this week. Asian affairs expert Gordon Chang is here with analysis. He's the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, but tonight James Rosen joins us to discuss his brand new book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, about the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. And the Federal Reserve is promising more interest hikes. Financial expert and Ave Maria fund manager George Schwartz returns with what it could mean to the U.S. and global financial markets the world over. Begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. But first, some news. Disgraced Jesuit Father Marco Rupnik was seen concelebrating mass at a Rome basilica this week, despite restrictions that prohibit him from any public ministerial or sacramental activity. Rupnik is the Jesuit priest and artist accused of sexual and psychological abuse of consecrated women and men. He is currently under investigation by his order for a number of new allegations. The Jesuit superior said that, according to the terms of his restrictions, Rupnik is only allowed to concelebrate masses in conjunction with his community, the Aleti Center. The Mass on Sunday, March 5th, was attended by members of the Aleti Center, but was also open to the public. Italian media have also reported that Rupnik was seen speaking to a visiting group at St. John Lateran Basilica in January about his artistic work. There have also been reports that Bishop Gustavo Zanchetta, confidant of Pope Francis, who's been convicted of abusing seminarians, he, too, was seen in public despite restrictions placed on him. We'll continue to monitor these stories. Troubling. Last week, Congress held hearings on the threat posed to the U.S. by the Chinese Communist Party. This week, China's foreign minister issued a warning to the U.S. that conflict between the two nations seems inevitable in the wake of the balloon controversy and the U.S. plan to sell missiles to Taiwan. Are China and the U.S. preparing for an eventual conflict, and should they? And what of China's ongoing offenses against religious liberty and human rights? Joining me to discuss is Asian affairs expert and author, Gordon Chang. Gordon, thanks for being here. Let's start with China's warning to the U.S. this week that confrontation and conflict are inevitable unless the United States backs off of what Xi calls containment, encirclement, and suppression of China. Gordon, this sounds like uh, Xi, the president there, is laying the groundwork for a coming conflict. In the wake of the spy balloon controversy, the recent announcement that the U.S. is considering the sale of missiles to Taiwan, is a hot war or a conflict with China inevitable? I don't think it's inevitable, Raymond, um, but it's becoming increasingly likely. And I think that we can say that it mm. will occur unless something changes. And right now, I don't see uh, too much changing because the Biden administration is not applying those policies that can deter China. We know that deterrence is breaking down. We don't have to guess that. We can hear it from the words of the Chinese. 
And right now, they are establishing a justification to strike the United States. James Lilly, yep. our great ambassador That's to Beijing at the end of the 1980s and the 1990s, say the, the Chinese always telegraph their punches, and that's exactly what they're doing now. Yeah. No, it sounds like a predicate for war. I mean, particularly what Xi said. Uh, he also told his uh, military heads last week, I think, prepare. 2027 is coming. You need to be ready. Uh, how is the Biden administration preparing for this conflict, should it come? I mean, is the U.S. taking China seriously? Uh, you know, we're taking China seriously, quote-unquote, but we're not taking it uh, as an urgent matter. And that's what's really important, mm -hmm. because, you know, we heard William Burns, the director of the CIA, say that China basically is going to go to war in 2027, or at least be prepared to do so. But I think it could be very well sooner than that. The reason is that right now there's distress in China, and that gives Xi Jinping a lot of reasons to lash out. And also, there's always the possibility of accident, because China is engaged in this very dangerous intercepts of our planes in the global commons. Mm. So we need to be ready to fight tonight, as they say, not 15 years or five years from tonight. Yeah. Well, when Xi is saying, elevate quickly to his military leaders, uh, uh, people better listen. The government of Taiwan, uh, Gordon, is reporting that it suspects China warships of cutting off internet from the island, which would appear to be another in a long line of intimidation uh, tactics, including sending warships, fighter jets toward Taiwan. How soon are we likely to see China take action against Taiwan? And is the Ukraine-Russia conflict being, uh, are there lessons that the Chinese are drawing from that? Yeah, I think there are lessons that China is getting from Ukraine. And, and we like to say, well, you know, the heroic resistance of the Ukrainian people is giving Beijing second thoughts. As a matter of fact, that's what William Burns has said. But I think that they're seeing, first of all, the breakdown in deterrence that uh, thought that made Vladimir Putin thought he could invade without cost. And I think they're also seeing the sanctions that we're imposing on Russia are not really that effective. So uh, I'm afraid that the messages that Beijing is getting out of the Ukraine war are encouraging it to move on Taiwan, not discouraging it. Yeah, well, despite the Biden sanctions on Russia, their economy is growing faster than the U.S. economy. So the lesson would be defy the U.S., do what you're going to do, and let them spend their wealth uh, sending secondary uh, armaments to your opponent and drain their own wealth. It sounds like a good plan, and, and I'm sure she is watching. The White House keeps saying they do not support independence for Taiwan, Gordon. Is that the right messaging? Or does that look like capitulation and collapse before Xi? Yeah, I think that that does look like capitulation. What we should be saying is that the United States will defend Taiwan. We will offer a mutual defense treaty. We will offer to recognize Taiwan as Taiwan. And I actually think that we should mm. preposition some munitions there, something we didn't do in Ukraine, and even base a small tripwire force there, like we do in South Korea. The point is that, yeah, this is risky and dangerous, but because of really bad policy for three decades, everything is risky and dangerous. And the most risky and dangerous mm. thing of all is to continue with policies that haven't worked. Yeah. According to reports, China's defense budget has doubled 
over the past 10 years. China has the world's largest standing military, the world's largest navy. China seems to be talking about war on a daily basis. What does the U.S. need to do to push back at this point? I mean, the enforced sanctions, that doesn't seem to be doing the trick. Uh, no, no, certainly not the um, posture of the Biden administration. Um, we need to convince China that we will act with political will, and that means um, taking actions that in some ways, you know, hurt the United States, because, you know, everything that we do is going to have some detrimental impact, and China is counting on us not to do anything because some group in the United States will complain. We need to show political will. We do that we have a chance of stopping China before it invades Taiwan, Japan, the Philippines, or wherever. But if we don't do that, mm -hmm. the Chinese will say, well, the Americans, they, they're not really serious. We can do what we want, which is exactly what Putin thought in uh, February of last year. Uh, is the Chinese economic model working at this point, Gordon? I mean, uh, there's a Wall Street Journal article this week that talks about the CCP's making inroads to private companies and corporations in China and worries that they could upset the chain supply in the United States. How integrated are Chinese businesses here in the U.S.? And, and does that pose a threat? It absolutely does, because, um, you know, we heard, for instance, TikTok saying that they would never comply with the demand to spy for Beijing. Well, there's something called the 2017 National Intelligence Law in China that requires every Chinese entity to spy if demanded. And, of course, no Chinese entity, no Chinese national can refuse a demand from the Communist Party. So, yeah, we have to believe that because of this doctrine of civil-military fusion, where the military gets everything, that essentially private, state, it doesn't really matter. It's one big company that is a threat mm -hmm. to the United States. Hmm. I want to move on to the ongoing human rights and religious liberty issues in China. As I mentioned earlier, the U.S. Congress convened hearings on the China threat. Congressman Chris Smith was here last week, and he's sponsoring an anti-human trafficking organ harvesting bill. Um, CNA reports this week that one Chinese province is using a government smart religion app to force religious believers to register in order to attend services. China Aid, a U.S.-based Christian charity, says the provincial government of Henan is using the app to require all believers to make what it calls online reservations before attending a church, a mosque, or a Buddhist temple. Now, Gordon, the, the, the app records the usual personal information. It issues a reservation code. And believers must take temperature and uh, put other vitals into this app before they can attend worship. Your thoughts on this new level of control being taken by the CCP? Yeah, this is part of the Communist Party's um, digital totalitarianism, as it's been called. And mm. this has gone further than what we've seen before. But this is the general drift of where Beijing is going. You know, they're trying to put in place this national social credit system. And I'm sure that they are going to have church attendance as a negative factor. This measures um, mm. behavior of people. So clearly, we are moving in a direction where there will be um, no religious uh, ceremonies or, or services ever permitted in China, because Beijing does not want religion at any place in China, um, even if it's controlled religion. Hmm.
So, uh, it, which, again, boggles the mind why the Vatican would continue to update their agreement with China, handing over their worshipers, handing over their dioceses to the Chinese authorities. Were they not better underground? And the most important thing, the thing that leapt out to me, Gordon, during this conversation, is that the Chinese always telegraph their punches. If that's true, people should throw TikTok off of their phones and probably throw their phones away today, and we should stop doing business with the Chinese in any way. I'll give you the final word. Absolutely. You know, we are seeing, um, just taking religion um, on the Protestants, the underground Protestant sects are, are rapidly um, increasing membership and, uh, and, and services, uh, whereas the official Protestant church is stagnating. I think that's also true for um, Catholicism in China, although it's a yes. little bit different because you do need priests. But clearly, um, when you have the, the regime involved, it's never good. No, no. They were better underground. They were healthier underground. And, and you had Absolutely. a real lively faith. I think uh, the Vatican has done a great disservice to their people by exposing them and, uh, and worse, handing over lists of the people who were attending and the cameras being installed in the churches. It's the worst thing that could have happened. Gordon, we will leave it there. For all the latest, you can follow Gordon at his Twitter account, at Gordon G. Chang. Thank you, Gordon. Thanks so much, Raymond. As some of you know, I am releasing a new picture book series from HarperCollins Zonder Kids on March 21st called Turnabout Tales. The first book is The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison. It's the story of a boy who was thrown out of school, written off as addled and unable to be taught. His turnabout tale is an inspiration, I think. It touches on the importance of parents and the belief in a child's possibilities. I'm pleased to announce the Thomas Edison Book Tour tonight. I'll be doing a virtual signing on March 21st. You can sign up for that and order a signed edition at RaymondArroyo.com. Or come join me in New Orleans, Jacksonville, Florida, The Villages, The Reagan Library, and Nashville. Cannot wait to see you all on the road. All the details are at RaymondArroyo.com. The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison is available for pre-order now at the EWTN catalog, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. It makes a wonderful Easter gift, by the way, that will touch the young and the young at heart. When he's not busy serving as chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, my next guest is also an accomplished author. Tonight, he's here to talk about his brand new book on one of the most influential legal minds in U.S. history, Antonin Scalia. Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, captures the first 50 years of Justice Antonin Scalia's life. Please welcome back to the program James Rosen. James, great to see you. Uh, now, I know you meticulously researched this biography. What inspired you? What drew you to dedicate five years of your life to write about Nino Scalia? Well, first, thanks so much for having me back, Raymond. It's an honor to be back with you. My pleasure. Uh, this book has its origins in my high school years in the 1980s when I first saw Justice Scalia on television on a program called The Constitution, that delicate balance on PBS, where eminent minds were situated in a theater-in-the-round setting and debated hypotheticals. He struck me as so different from the other participants who included other Supreme Court justices, the likes of Dan Rather, Gerald Ford, and what have you. And when I first got to Washington as a reporter in 1999, then for Fox News, one of the first things I did was write to Justice Scalia seeking an interview. 
And that commenced an extraordinary mm. correspondence between us that went on for a couple of years, amusing and unusual, and I'll be covering that in volume two of this biography. And we also had a pair of lunches, one-on-one, oh. -on -one, at the A.V. Ristorante, his favorite Italian restaurant, where we drank wine together. He made me eat off of his plate. I was like, Mr. Justice, I can't. So come on, come on, come on. So there I am shoveling vegetables off of Justice Scalia's plate. He drove me back to my office in his car, and I've subsequently confirmed with uh, classmates who knew him back in the 1950s, as well as uh, clerks in the, in the 21st century, that it was a scary experience for them as well as for me. Uh, and so I knew from those extraordinary experiences with him about a quarter century ago, when he was a very, very generous to a young reporter, that someday I would write about him. James, as you mentioned, you knew Justice Scalia. Tell me a little bit about the man that you encountered and were, was he aware that you planned to write a biography of him? I didn't even plan necessarily to write a biography of him at that point. I was really just reaching out for an interview. The lunches were held off the record. Uh, they will remain that way. Mm. Um, however, the, uh, in terms of the substance of the conversations, uh, I will be excerpting from our amusing and unusual correspondence in Volume 2, uh, which <laughs> occurred on Supreme Court stationery. Uh, he was very down-to-earth, I found, in my exposure to him of over maybe three, three-and-a-half hours' time with him. Uh, you could be forgiven, uh, seated across uh, a table at the A.V. Ristorante uh, from him, for uh, periodically forgetting that you're in the presence of one of the most uh, brilliant intellectual minds of our time, and just uh, imagining that you're having lunch with your avuncular Italian uncle, a sort of Paul Servino-like character. Uh, he was that <laughs> down-to-earth. Um, but uh, I'll tell you one interesting story about that, which, again, doesn't really touch on the substance of our conversations, uh, where I arrived first at the A.V. Ristorante. This will be in volume two. Right now, the book Scalia, Rise to Greatness tells the story of his rise to the Supreme Court, his taking his seat on the Supreme Court, and volume two will cover his Supreme Court tenure. Uh, I arrived first for lunch, and when he arrived, he was a sort of silhouetted, uh, jaunty figure uh, with the sunshine from outside shining in through the front door. And, and making him appear silhouetted as he sort of strolled towards me. He, pleasantries were effectuated, uh, and he then uh, grabs the menu and asks of our uh, waiter, who was a young fellow who was really Italian and spoke only broken English, what is pulpy? What is pulpy? And the, and the waiter says, octopus. And he says, octopus, I'll have the pulpy. And he hands the, the, the menu. And I decided to go for something easily manipulable with a knife and fork, veal parmesan, reflecting my own Staten Island heritage. And uh, mm -hmm. the guy's writing it down, and Justice Scalia says, no, no, no. And he says to the waiter, give him the rabbit. And the waiter and I look at him in unison and say, hey, rabbit. And he says, yeah, yeah, he's going to like, you're going to like the rabbit. Give him the rabbit. And the waiter stalked off and eventually returned with rabbit. Raymond, I hadn't had rabbit ever in my life until that moment. I don't think I've had it since. We're going back 25 years. Uh, and it was an example of the country's foremost opponent of judicial activism overruling my lunch order. Uh, <laughs> maybe that, that gives... Is, that's classic Nino. <laughs> he always knew better in, in life, if not in the law. Um, I want to get into Scalia's upbringing. He was born in New Jersey, grew up in Queens. His father was a Sicilian immigrant and his mother the daughter of Italian immigrants. He was Jesuit educated. How did that particular setting at that time in history form Nino Scalia to be the man and the jurist he would later become? So this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, first of all, it's the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia, which means it's the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia. The two previous biographies were one of which he cooperated with extensively. Uh, both turned out fairly contemptuous of the justice's philosophy, his jurisprudence, his legacy, his conduct. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is the first admiring 
uh, portrait of him at book length, and it draws on a wealth of documentary and personal sources that were unavailable to or overlooked by the previous uh, biographers. Among these documents is a secret oral history of his life that Justice Scalia conducted in his Supreme Court chambers in 1992 and which was only recently unsealed, and I'm the first biographer to make use of it. He was asked in that secret oral history in 1992 if he believed that his Jesuitical tra uh, training, uh, he was the valedictorian both at his uh, Jesuit high school, Xavier High School in Manhattan, which is a rare hybrid of a Jesuit institution and a military academy. He was valedictorian there and then went to Georgetown University, uh, another Jesuit institution where, again, he was valedictorian. He was asked in that oral history by his interviewer, uh, an attorney he had known for many years, uh, whether he believed his Jesuitical training uh, came to affect his uh, view of originalism and original meaning as uh, the defining goal for judges and justices on the Supreme Court with its reverence for text and what have you. And Justice Scalia was reluctant to draw that connection, but there's no question that his Catholic faith, uh, his parents were devout Catholics, mm. uh, and his training at the hands of the Jesuits instilled in him um, a reverence for text and also um, a kind of rigor uh, and, and polish mm. to the rhetorical enterprise. Uh, and I tell the story, I interviewed one of his lone surviving, few surviving classmates from Xavier, a man who became an Opus Dei priest, Father Connor, who's one of the most important interviewees in the whole book, uh, and who is still preaching and blogging actively in his 80s, very sharp of memory and logic, uh, about Scalia's early faith. And uh, he was a witness to uh, Scalia's faith as, an, as, a, as a foundational uh, propellant for him, if you will. So this is the first biography that really treats um, Scalia's faith in the depth that it deserves. One point, Scalia resisted all attempts to suggest that he imbued his decisions with his Catholic faith. He used to say, there's That's no correct. such thing as a Catholic hamburger. The closest we could come would be a hamburger that's perfectly made. <laughs> Classic Scalia. Uh, you write about his father, Sam, this way. A good man, moral character was king in Sam's eyes, prized more than intellect or wealth. Son, he would tell Nino, brains are like muscles. You can rent them by the hour. The only thing that's not for sale is character. Above all, Salvatore's life and work represented the essence, the full power of the American dream, and the younger Scalia internalized this early on. Indeed, it later informed the justice's jurisprudence. Tell us about the influence of Sam Scalia and how that, if not the Catholicism, may have shaped his jurisprudence. And what of his mother, Catherine? So, um, Justice Scalia's father and his mother both died. Um, just around the same time as each other and um, just before uh, Antonin Scalia was nominated to the Supreme Court. So they lived to see him become an appellate mm. court judge. Um, and that was the one bittersweet element of his confirmation to the Supreme Court for him. And we have the previously unpublished story here of a law clerk who was working with him at that time that that happened, where he finally secured uh, a seat on the Supreme Court. And, and the clerk mentioned, it's too bad your parents didn't live to see it. And Scalia actually weeps. Uh, in memory of his parents. They were both teachers. Hmm. The father came here not knowing English in 1920 and became a renowned Romance Languages professor. His mother, as you say, was a school teacher. Uh, between their teaching profession, their dedication uh, to classic texts, uh, and, and, and Salvatore Scalia's particular suspicion 
of the damage that could be done in unfaithful translation of texts from one language to another. Uh, and with the immersion in the Catholic faith, uh, where uh, foundational texts uh, are central um, to, to the entire denomination and to the entire religion, uh, Scalia em uh, emerged with a, an extraordinary reverence for text, uh, whether it was the text of Shakespeare or whether it was the text of liturgy, um, uh, and this informed his jurisprudence. You write at length about Nino's larger-than-life personality. Uh, Justice Scalia, at the beginning of the book, you have this little interview with his daughter, Meg, which I loved. Um, and Meg says, after his death, when people described him as larger-than-life, he was. And he was that way to us. And you say, and he, and he was cognizant that he was that way, right? And Meg says, oh, yes, oh, yeah. I mean, he was putting on a show, but it was a great show. And, uh, and you ask, where did that persona come from? Did it come from his college debating or his acting experience? Was it there all along? Um, tell us about what you discovered about his educational development uh, and how that shaped this larger-than-life personality that we, of course, came to know and some of us to love. Well, another Catholic priest who was interviewed for uh, this project was Father Paul Scalia, Justice Scalia's son. Mm. Uh, and he reminded me of how his father used to regale him with uh, stories, again, uh, at, uh, when he was attending Xavier High School, a Jesuit military academy in the 1950s, and from which Scalia uh, graduated as valedictorian, that uh, he and his classmates, including the future Father Bob Connor, uh, were terrorized by a particular Jesuit priest who uh, would have them conjugate Latin verbs in 60 seconds' time under the threat of an actual ticking stopwatch. And he and Father Bob, <laughs> to the end of their days together, uh, when they remained friends, uh, w whenever they got together at the Scalia's house in northern Virginia, the first thing they would do is conjugate Latin verbs for 60 seconds, uh, seeing who would do it better. <laughs> uh, but that, that commitment to rigor uh, is what Father Scalia told me about his father's development in, and, and education that we can see in his opinions because his liveliness as a writer, which was central to his influence and very much deliberate yeah. by him, uh, is also informed by a strict grammatical sense. He was a snoot by his own admission, which is a, a word that means someone who cares maybe a little too much about words and usage uh, and, uh, and gets strict with other folks about it. And so all of this really did come, in a sense, from his father's work, his mother's work as a teacher, but also the Catholic faith and the Jesuits. Yeah, and you know, he—I met Nino, uh, James, just as a sidebar here. Uh, he used to go to Old St. Mary's, which had the Latin rite, the old, the old Latin mass, and uh, he was there faithfully every morning. Uh, reading his uh, missal, but it was that same sense of tradition, the the rigor, as you say, of language and liturgy that I think bled over into his everyday life and and his view of the world. You write about a significant event in the lives of uh, Antonin and Maureen Scalia in 1960, his wife. That's quite telling. They attended a performance of A Man for All Seasons, the story of St. Thomas More. Um, you write, the tale of unshakable Catholic faith and fidelity to the rule of law deeply touched the Scalias. After her husband's death, Maureen recalled that the play grew in significance to us over the years. Scalia regularly quoted it, closing out law courses with a reading of his favorite passage. Why do you think that play and Moore's example touched Nino so deeply? So, first of all, we've just now mentioned Maureen Scalia. This book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 
uh, presents the most intimate portrait of the relationship between Antonin Scalia and Maureen Scalia, and the most comprehensive. Uh, and Maureen Scalia is a hero of this book, or a heroine, in her own right. Uh, and as Gene Scalia said to me, he is the oldest son of Justice Scalia, a prominent attorney in his own right, and formerly a cabinet official in the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. He said, you're writing a book about my dad. He said, I could probably name other important or influential Supreme Court justices. In effect, Gene told me, uh, I can't tell you anyone else who accomplished what my mom did. Uh, Maureen Scalia raised the nine Scalia children uh, without very much assistance from Antonin Scalia, as he was the first to say. And this book explores yeah. really the sacrifices of Maureen Scalia uh, to that effect. Uh, and so mm. the Scalia's reverence for this play uh, throughout their lives, after seeing it uh, as uh, newlyweds in Europe in the early 60s, um, revolves around uh, their view that their devotion to God should, um, should be their first priority over any other consideration, including considerations of state or promotion or even imminent death. Mm. And, and in addition to that, he always carried that faith with him. It was very important to him. I can remember him hissing at people who dared to talk after mass, James. He, he, he loathed that. You know, little people would be whispering to each other, oh, it's great to see you. Shh, quiet. And it was like, okay, Scalia spoke and everybody clear out. Uh, he loathed judicial activism when a judge imposed their personal politics on a case rather than applying only what is written in the text of the Constitution or the law at hand. How did he arrive at originalism? as the best way of interpreting law. Where did that come from? So the readers of Scalia Rise to Greatness will chart uh, the development of this originalism and textualism approach to the interpretation of the Constitution and statutory laws uh, that, that, that uh, was spawned in Scalia uh, and which basically was his, the, the centerpiece of his extraordinary legacy, his impact on the law and American society. Mm -hmm. Um, in his answers to questions about when his originalism first formed, uh, Scalia himself was kind of all over the lot, I saw, in reviewing all of his published interviews over the years. At times he suggested that he had always had this view. Uh, at other times he suggested that it came to him sometime around Watergate when he would have been 40 years of age. Um, having interviewed colleagues of his in the Ford-era Department of Justice, um, where he was assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, responsible for developing legal opinions that are binding for to say whether any particular action by the Ford administration would be lawful, lawful or unlawful. Um, his deputies told me, uh, who are still around today in teaching law, that he didn't impress upon them uh, that in their court filings at the time, in the mid-1970s, they should take any particular originalist approach. So he wasn't famous, he wasn't exhibiting at that point what he later became famous for. Uh, but all in all, mm -hmm. as we've been mm -hmm. discussing, Raymond, I think his approach to originalism, the idea that the law shouldn't be considered like a living constitution that can expand to take account of new phenomena like nuclear weapons or the internet. The law should be, under, should be applied and interpreted according to its original meaning, the meaning it was widely understood to have at the mm -hmm. time it was enacted, and not loaded up like a Christmas tree, if you will, with uh, latter-day policy preferences. And the best tool, Scalia said, for determining the original meaning of a law is not the legislative history that preceded it, where people spoke on the Senate floor or injected things into committee reports. Scalia said the best way to discern the original meaning of the Constitution or any other statute passed since then is the text of that law. And by the time he died, no less a mm -hmm. figure than Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, an appointee of Barack Obama, proclaimed that thanks to Scalia's influence, often sometimes exercised in solo dissent, not always as a 
part of the winning side in any Supreme Court cases, uh, thanks to his revolution, so to speak, quote, we are all originalists now. Hmm. You break new ground in the book, James, uh, regarding uh, Antonin Scalia's own thoughts about his future. It was widely believed uh, and, and often said that he had no goal or calling to the high court. You uncovered a conversation he had with a friend back in 1959 that indicates otherwise. What is that? Right. So we mentioned earlier Father Bob Connor who knew Scalia just as mm -hmm. Bob Connor back in their Xavier days in high school. They were in the marching band together. They, uh, they played basketball together. Scalia set Bob Connor up with a girl at that time, uh, according to Father <laughs> Connor's recollections. Uh, they drift a little bit, but remained friends through college. Uh, and this is something that Father Connor has never confided to anyone before, and he is an un unimpeachable source on the matter. Uh, I asked him if he had ever been interviewed by anybody ever before about his relationship with Justice Scalia, and he said no. And I said, what about the FBI? Huh. Because the FBI uh, conducted background checks on Scalia four times in 14 years, and sometimes went all the way back to people who knew him when he was 13. And uh, the Father yeah. Connor said, no, not by the FBI either. I think I'd remember that. And what he told me was huh. that uh, in the summer of 1959, when Connor decided to drop out of medical school and pursue the study of Opus Dei in Rome, uh, Bob Connor's parents were distraught that they thought their son was throwing away his future, so her, his mother summoned uh, two people who she thought might be able to talk sense into her wayward son, Bob Connor. One was a Jesuit priest who did come by the house. The other was young Nino Scalina, uh, Scalia, then 22 years old um, and, um, and in law school. And uh, Father Connor told me this scene. He remembered it vividly, the, the address on Downey Road in Queens on the south side of the street where he was up on the second floor in his brother's bedroom. And out of nowhere, in walks into his brother's bedroom, Nino Scalia, whom he hadn't seen in a few years. And Scalia says to him, hmm. what are you doing? And Bob Connor, as he recounted, Father Connor re recounted this to me, said, I'm going to go study Opus Dei. I asked if, as devout as he was, Scalia had any, seemed to evince any understanding of what Opus Dei was. Connor told me that he explained it to him, that it's the study of uh, the sanctity, of uh, the finding of sanctity in everyday life. And Scalia sort of nodded and shook his head thoughtfully. And then, according to Father Connor, and again, this story has never appeared in print before uh, this book, uh, Father Connor said, what are you doing? And Scalia replied, I'm going to the Supreme Court. And Father Connor said, how are you going to do that? And at this point in the interview, he said to me, James, he had a job lined up with some law firm in Ohio. I said, Jones Day. He said, yes, it was Jones Day, which was based then in Cleveland, but had then, as it does now, a Washington office. And Scalia said, to, when mm. Father Bob said, or Bob Connor said, how are you going to do that? Scalia said, mentioned the job with the law firm he had coming up, which indeed Scalia took, um, and said, they have a Washington office. I will be sent to Washington, and I will rise. I asked Father, uh, Father Connor, did that strike you as farcical, that he would say such a thing? I'm going to the Supreme Court and I will rise to the Supreme Court? He said, not at all. Nino was driven. I asked, did you get the idea that he considered a, a divine calling? He said, I bet. And the way Father Connor described it to me was a transcendental convergence, almost epiphanal in nature between the two young men, in which one declared, said, where are you going? What are you doing? And he said, I'm going to Opus Dei. And, the, and he said back to him, where are you going? What are you doing? And he said, I'm going to the Supreme Court. This answers uh, and resolves a mystery that had attended the literature in Scalia's life of when he really first began to harbor the ambition to become a Supreme Court justice. His ardent defenders, which mm -hmm. include his family, his clerks, and others, have always been leery of attributing this ambition to Scalia too soon because they did not want to contribute to a false careerist narrative of his life that the previous biographies had promulgated. 
my view is the, the conversation with Father Connor is decisive on the point. Uh, and uh, no one, including the Scalia family, should be upset about this because there are certain individuals who know early on their destiny. Charles Schulz, the creator of Peanuts, Charlie Brown and Snoopy, said he wanted to be a cartoonist from the age of five. Antonin Scalia, from a very young age, knew what the Supreme Court was and why he belonged there, and he pursued it within propriety. Uh, it was not through careerist uh, sort of currying of favor with more powerful men by tailoring his opinions this way or that. Frequently he did the opposite and he rendered unpopular opinions. But uh, it was kind of a manifest destiny and that's why I consider Father Connor one of the most important interviewees in the entire book. James, we could go on much longer, but the book is really amazing. I mean, not only have you captured, I think, the man uh, and his eloquence, but you've done it eloquently. Um, Thank you. Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, by James Rosen, is available now at bookstores everywhere and online. And you can follow James at, uh, on Twitter at James Rosen TV. Thank you so much. Thank you, Raymond. I can hardly believe that this April will mark the centenary of our dear Reverend Mother Angelica. To mark the occasion, Random House Image is releasing a new edition of my biography, Mother Angelica, the remarkable story of a nun, her nerve, and a network of miracles. It includes a new foreword by yours truly, and for the first time in years, the complete audiobook with new material, is available at Audible and elsewhere from Random House. I do all the voices. It's a lot of fun. The new edition of Mother Angelica's biography is available now at the EWTN Religious Catalog, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. It's a great time to dive into not only the biography, but the three spiritual books I edited for Mother and her monastery, and the sequel to the biography, Her Grand Silence, The Last Years and Living Legacy, of Mother Angelica. Details are always at RaymondArroyo.com. He's the CEO of Schwartz Investment Council, portfolio manager to the Ave Maria Mutual Funds, and author of In God We Trust, Morally Responsible Investing. He's here tonight to discuss this volatile economy. Please welcome back to the program George Schwartz. George, thanks for being here. Uh, I want to start with what the Fed Chairman Jerome Powell had to say earlier this week about interest rates. He said, the latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated. Uh, George, what's causing inflation to keep rising? And despite what seemed like a slight decrease at the end of 2022, what does the Fed plan to do about it? What can they do? Well, interest rates are going to go up further. There's no doubt about that, Raymond. But what's causing the inflation? Well, it's uh, two prongs. It uh, started back a few years ago when uh, the reckless spending of the Democrat Party, headed by Joe Biden, uh, decided that they were going to uh, spend and spend and spend. Tax and spend, that's always the methodology for the Democrats. But uh, Following the uh, pandemic, they pumped, I think it was $1.9 trillion into the economy. That was the uh, watering the seeds of inflation. Then comes along the Fed, which had been keeping interest rates basically at zero for the last several years, and that further watered the seeds of inflation. And uh, that uh, policy by the Fed of having extremely low interest rates, basically zero interest rates, uh, was uh, the uh, 
like the icing on the cake for inflation, and it's high and mm. getting higher now. So the Fed has no choice uh, now George, but to raise interest rates. Yeah, how will this impact home sales, let's say, and, and investment in businesses? Higher interest rates always leads to a slowdown uh, in uh, major purchases like homes and uh, appliances always suffer. And uh, home prices, which had been on a tear for several years, have slowed down recently. And uh, mortgage rates are influenced by higher interest rates, of course. And uh, the uh, economy slows during a period of rising interest rates. That's the whole game plan. Chairman uh, mm. uh, Powell has set the, uh, his sights on killing inflation, and he's probably going to succeed in doing it at some point, but it's going to take higher interest rates than the, for the time being to, uh, to do it, to, hurt, mm. uh, to slow down that demand for, uh, for money. Uh, I, George, I want to talk about the overall market performance in 2022. Uh, tell us how mutual funds performed last year overall. And how has that year set the tone for what you're seeing now? And how does it look? Last year was a difficult year for investors in both stocks and bonds. Mm -hmm. I think for the first time in 40 years, stock prices went down and bond prices went down. Very unusual. But uh, mm -hmm. most mutual funds had a terrible year. The S&P 500 was down 18 percent. The average bond fund was down 11 percent. At the Ave Maria Mutual Funds, we were very fortunate. Uh, the Ave Maria Value Fund was up 4.2% uh, for the year, again, versus minus 18% on the, uh, the S&P 500. In fact, that fund was yeah. ranked 11th among all mutual funds in the country, 11th best performance, mm -hmm. and among the um, category it's in, uh, it was ranked number one in the country. So we were very, uh, mm. very pleased with that well, well, in our... George. What's the special sauce? What were they doing differently at that fund than you were doing at your other funds or, or these other mutual funds out on the market? Well, as you know, Raymond, I've said for many years that uh, we're contrarians. We do the, try to do the opposite of what most people are doing or what most investors are doing. Mm. And last year, a lot of investors bailed out of the uh, oil and gas stocks and coal stocks, the, uh, the, uh, the hydrocarbon stocks and uh, had driven prices down to ridiculously low levels over the last couple of years. And that's when we loaded up on the high-quality uh, oil and gas companies, again, companies that, mm. uh, don't violate, that don't violate the core principles of the Catholic Church, which is what our, our funds are all about. Yeah. And Let's talk about the Biden administration's handling of this economy, George, for a moment. Uh, the president has been pushing private businesses to deliver lower prices to consumers. But how is that possible when production costs and the cost of labor continue to grow? This seems like an anti-market uh, approach here where the government wants to meddle in the economy. Will that work, just simply shifting prices and saying, oh, we're just going to charge less for this? Yeah. The uh, labor uh, market has been very, very strong. It's, uh, it's, uh, the unemployment rate is at 3.5% right now, 3.4%. Mm -hmm. I think it's the lowest level on record since they've been keeping records. And uh, it's ironic. And uh, the, there's still 10 million job openings. So employers can't hire people. And uh, it's unlikely that the inflation is going to get broken severely unless the uh, 
uh, job market uh, loosens up, and it's the job market is very very tight. But it's uh, it's silly that the uh, president is trying to jawbone corporations to lower their prices when everything that he has done and the, the Democrat administration has done has served to raise cost and raise prices. And uh, it's going to be up to the Federal Reserve now to raise interest rates enough to uh, break the back of inflation. And it'll probably happen. George, do you think a recession is coming? I know it's been forecasted for a long time. I mean, these, the, the, the prices of just basic commodities, groceries and, and, and uh, oil, gas, is through the roof. Yeah. Inflation had been 9 percent a few months ago. Now it's running at a rate of about 6 percent. So uh, President Biden says that inflation is coming down. But you have to remember that just because inflation is at 6 percent now and is not as high as it was doesn't mean prices are coming down. It's still going to cost 6 percent mm -hmm. more a year from now. If, uh, if your groceries cost $100 now, they're going to cost $106 a year from now, everything else being equal, if inflation continues to run at 6 percent. But uh, it's, a, it's a, uh, an ongoing problem. And uh, a recession, yes, a recession could happen. We're not forecasting a serious recession. Mm -hmm. It'll probably be, a, probably be a soft landing. And this recession has been uh, forecasted for a long time. This coming recession, if it happens, yeah. has been forecasted for a long time. I call it the Godot inflation. Everybody's waiting for it, but it hasn't happened. Yeah. It may not happen either. The economy is unbelievably strong, really. George, the Biden administration is preparing a new budget. Uh, included in that budget are higher taxes on investments of upper-income earners, upper-income being $400,000 a year, and a 5 percent increase in federal salaries. What impact could that have? I mean, Biden says he has to do this to keep Medicare solvent. Yeah. Well, first of all, the good news is it's not going to happen. The House controlled by the Republicans now is not going to allow that to happen. But uh, it's part of uh, Biden's uh, um, positioning himself in trying to uh, gain votes in the uh, upcoming election. Uh, and he thinks he's going to be the nominee, and I hope and pray he, he's, uh, he's not. But uh, we'll see how that goes. We'll see who the Republicans can put up to go against him. Yeah, if, if, if that tax proposal passed, I can only imagine the impact on investment, though. If they start raising taxes on investments, yeah. When uh, whenever the Democrats try to uh, stick it to the rich, they end up hitting the middle class harder than ever. And uh, mm -hmm. but again, I don't think it's likely that those proposals are going to pass mm -hmm. because of the Republican-controlled House. Let's talk for a moment about investing, uh, investing rather, an investment strategy. Uh, a lot of folks I talk to, frankly, George, are terrified uh, of putting their money in the market right now. Is the market conducive to good returns on investment? And if so, what should their focus be? There's widespread pessimism among investors today, both institutional investors and retail investors. And uh, I talked to uh, a lot of investors, both at the retail level and the uh, institutional level. And the common refrain is, well, things are a little unclear now, George. I'm just going to sit back and hold mm -hmm. cash. Well, I always ask them, where do you think stock prices are going to be when things are more clear? And the answer is stock prices will be a lot higher. There's so much cash on the sidelines. I'm talking trillions of dollars of cash on the sideline by individual mm -hmm. investors and institutional investors. and uh, I'm talking about 
foundations and endowment funds and university endowments and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, the next change in investor psychology is going to be go from pessimism to neutral or even optimism. And uh, when that happens, there'll be a, a flood of money going into the market. And with the economy being still relatively strong, even if it uh, gets into a mild recession, there's going to be a lot of opportunity to make uh, very good investments now, which uh, mm. will pan out over the next year or two or three. <clears throat> George, remarkably, since the last time we had you on the show, the political landscape saw a major shift with the repeal of Roe v. Wade. Ave Maria mutual funds have always been pro-life and pro-family. How has this new right. political reality affected the way <clears throat> stocks are chosen for the Ave Maria portfolios, and how should folks think of morally responsible investing in this current climate? Yeah, well, we're all about morally responsible investing. We are not SRI, socially responsible investing, and we're not about um, <clears throat> DEI and uh, all the other things that the left have uh, put forth. Um, but our methodology has not changed a bit in the 20 years we've been running the Ave Maria mutual funds. We screen out companies that support abortion and pornography, embryonic stem cell, and a few other items. Abortion's the big one. Our 100,000 shareholders scattered across the country are 100% pro-life, and uh, we manage the portfolios to be consistent with those beliefs. Mm. Uh, in God We Trust, Morally Responsible Investing by George Schwartz is available in bookstores everywhere and online. It's a terrific resource, and you can also find out more about Ave Maria Mutual Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. George Schwartz, thank you for being here. Thank you, Raymond. Great to be with you, as always. And a group of nuns has gathered to record a new CD of music dedicated to the Blessed Sacrament. The sisters have teamed with De Montfort Music, Sophia Music Group, to bring us Adoration from Carmel, Eucharistic hymns from the Carmelite sisters of the most sacred heart of Los Angeles. A member of their community, Sister Gianna Heinemann, is here to tell us more about it. Sister Gianna, thank you for being here. Uh, we'll get to the new CD in a moment, but... Uh, tell me about your community, the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart of Los Angeles. Um, give me a sense of the community and its apostolates. Well, our community was um, founded from—our mother founders came from Mexico during the religious persecution in the 1920s and 30s, and she came to Los Angeles and uh, wanted to find a safe haven for her sisters. And so we have been here for 95 years, um, and we are a, a bit of a unique version of Carmel, as you may imagine. We're semi-cloistered, meaning that we uh, we do have our life of Carmel, our life of prayer, uh, but we have active works also, whereas other cloistered Carmelite communities, they don't leave their monastery. Um, but we have the traditional life of prayer, and then we serve in education, mm -hmm. in uh, retreat work, and in health care for the elderly. Mm. Now, Sister Gianna, obviously uh, a, a part of your service is music and the chant, and I know that plays an important role in your liturgical lives. How important is music to the community, and how does music reflect your devotion to the Eucharist? That's a great question. Well, we begin our day, um, our day is ordered, or we call it our orarium, 
is beginning with music and ending with music. Um, in the morning, our sister uh, who rings the rising bell wakes us. And so the very first thing coming out of our mouths and as we exit out of sleep is song and she's calling us to the chapel. So um, we begin before the Blessed Sacrament and we end before the Blessed Sacrament at night, um, praying Compline together. Mm-hmm. So singing is of the essence um, of our of our life um, in the Mass, in Eucharistic Adoration, and um, the Divine Office. Mm. The new CD is called Adoration from Carmel Eucharistic Hymns. Uh, it was recorded in your own St. Joseph's Chapel, and it consists of both traditional and contemporary arrangements. Um, how are these 16 selections chosen, sister, and what's the significance of these pieces of music that made their way onto the CD? Well, we wanted to compile a a selection of of music that's really flowing from our prayer, um, what we do every day out of our um, devotion to the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And um, especially with our community, we have a focus on devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So mm. what you'll hear on this CD is um, just the ancient tried and true uh, songs of love to the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, like Tantumergo, Panis Angelicus, Soul of My Savior. Mm. Um, and then we also, we thought about the people in the National Eucharistic Revival just picturing them sitting in the pew before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And we wrote songs with them in mind and with the Lord in mind and all the graces he wants to pour mm. out upon us during this time. So we have some some of the ancient and the well-known and then mm. a few that are born from our own prayer. I love it. Here's a bit of the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart, Adoration from Carmel. Listen. So beautiful. This is not the sisters' first CD, though. Uh, the community recorded its first album back in 1996. Sister Gianna, what's special about this new CD, and how are listeners reacting? Well, what's special about this new CD is uh, it's not original in sense of creative. It's ordinary to our Carmelite way of life. But what we're allowing you to do is step inside of our chapel and, um, as it were, sit in the pew with us um, or kneel and adore the Lord. So we just the way we recorded this CD is unique to our um, other albums that we've done. We recorded in our chapel and the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament was there. And um, it's just an authentic a rendering of, of our way of life. Mm. And I really love that every once in a while you can hear a, a rosary bead <laughs> jingle because we're getting into the music and we're singing and just loving the Lord in praise and together mm. with our voices. Well, I, I hope the audio engineer agrees with you, sister. You know, sometimes they get touchy about the, 
you know, the little tings and the clicks happening in the background. But we'll leave it there. Adoration from Carmel, Eucharistic hymns from the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart of Los Angeles is available now at music outlets everywhere and online. For more information, you can go to sophiamusicgroup.com. Sister Gianna, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.